APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Hello, this is Dr. Marie Gould Harper from American Public University. We have a special guest with us, Dr. David Bouguet. He is the author of a book entitled Backboneology, Tough Decisions at Work, and he's from Orange County, California. Thanks for being here, Dr. Bouguet. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, Marie. With so many disruptors like technology and aging population, how can managers stay ahead of disruption in the face of organizational change? I've been working a lot with different generations all at the same time. You really have a series of generations now in the workplace. You have the boomers, which would seem to be retiring and off the set, except they were hit by the Great Recession. So they're staying on longer than anticipated. And then the really the Gen Xers are trying to sit down and rise to leadership positions and have some frustration because the boomers are still hanging on. And then you have the millennials. The three things that I learned best that really work well, especially with the millennials and even the Gen Z groups, three things. First of all, learn to listen. It's incredible because of the fact that as a boomer myself, I have to ask for assistance from the millennial generation on a regular basis, probably more than any previous generation, because there's so much technology out there that almost consumes our life. So that's a skill set that every generation needs to hear, but especially if you're a leader, learn to listen, learn to empower, give people the authority to make decisions. And instead of chastising them for making a bad one, sit down and work with them in learning the process as to how they could have made a better decision in the process. And the other one really is something we should have been doing probably for generations past. It's called learn to praise. It seems to be a skill set that we're being reminded of on a regular basis that sometimes people work hard for you. And the people that talk the most and act out the most, they get the most attention, were the ones that really sit down and do the hard work for us, often get unknown and unpraised. So those three skill sets, learn to listen, learn to empower, and learn to praise are really valuable for any leader at any level in an organization. Great. I like those three points that you have brought up, and I wanted to go back to each one of them, starting with the first one, learn to listen. Would you agree or what are your thoughts on sometimes we just have to meet people where they are? And that involves the listening that you bring up, but sometimes it's the observation of the nonverbals. Have you encountered that type of mentality in your work experience? Too often, leaders are listening only to wait to dive in and give their own response and their own opinion. I've seen a lot of that. Listening, it's kind of incredible. I've gone through different kinds of education programs, and so have you. I've spent nine years after high school going to school. I never once took a course called Listening 101. We don't teach it. Somebody used an old phrase that says, God gave you two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you talk. I think if leaders did more of that, they'd find something better. Sometimes you have an idea, you walk into a room, and you don't listen to the people actually doing the work. 
So listening is a big deal. And let me give an example of that. I've worked in human resources for 15 years. And a lot of times in human resources, you have two different wonderful things going on. Number one, you work with people on the very best day of their lives when they get hired into the organization. And the other part is you get to work with them on their worst day when you're going through formal disciplinary action or you're terminating. You have these two polarized extremes, but in between you'll have investigations happen. My experience on it is that you normally don't find the truth of a matter until you talk to about five people. And it's not that anybody's lying. It's that they're telling you what happened from their perspective. Their own personal values, their own personal focus really does sit there and change the image that they're seeing of what the truth is to them. So listening is a giant skill that every leader has to really learn. If they don't learn it, they're going to learn it in a good way or a bad way because it's going to come back and bite them at the end. Listening is probably the single most powerful tool you can have in communicating. Yes, I totally agree. And I'll be perfectly honest, it's a skill set that I think I was lacking in the beginning of my career. And I just had to devote a lot of time to being able to sit back and just listen to people versus always trying to figure out what the answer is. Unfortunately, sometimes I think we either train or we educate people to be what I call be there with the first answer. Like everybody wants to be first and to be correct. So I like your approach of just sitting back and and listening sometime. Now I have a really great question for David right after this break and you really don't wanna miss it. Today's corporate world requires talented professionals who quickly rise to meet business needs on a global scale. At American Public University, we'll teach you how to meet the needs of domestic or international businesses. Take the next step and apply online at study at apu.com. And now we're back from the break. Now we will continue with that great question for Dr. Bouquet. In your book, Backboneology, Tough Decisions at Work, you correlate the vertebrae in the human spine to that of having a real backbone in a leadership position. How do you suggest budding and veteran leaders to spout newfound confidence when business changes are out of their control? A critical factor really comes down to how do we make decisions. Trying to find out what a problem is is much more difficult than a casual observation. I really push a concept called think, plan, do. And first of all, you think about the problem before you go and address it, then you plan how to address it, and then you do it. And those three correlate with, believe it or not, what's called the soul. Now, the soul, I realize that people may think instantly that this is a religious conversation, but it's not. The soul's been defined really as the mind, will, and emotions going all the way back to Aristotle. And then it, then it carries into the world of religion to some extent, but you'll see it really throughout the last 3,000 years of history that the mind, will, and emotions uh, really are part of us, who we are. It is the part that we think with. It is the part where we hold our emotional center and the part of our will. Now, it's easy for us to get out of balance because emotions of the three is really by far the most powerful and can totally overwhelm our mind, our will in the process. But I have a whole chapter where I devote, it's called, Don't Lead With Your Heart, But Don't Leave It Behind. In the world of management, you can sit down and try to suppress emotions out of decision-making, but it's there. 
really emotions do belong in our decision-making process, but they really should be the driving force behind the decision that we make. So you lead with your mind, and then you follow up on your will, and then you charge forward with what your plan has been set with your emotion. So using that aspect, that really does change a lot in the aspect of how you're going to address problems. The other one is I spend a whole chapter also on self-acceptance. You would be surprised how many people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s have never accepted themselves for who they are. That's kind of disappointing. I think each one of us is a unique creation. And so here we sit down and try to pretend to be somebody else, or we hide who we are, and we never accept us for who we are. I know you can't see me, Marie, but I'm a whopping five foot, six inches in height. Okay, so I'm never going to be six foot tall. I can be in my head, but I had to get over that in my much younger years. I had to accept who I am. You would be surprised how many people don't accept something as simple as that, a reality that they face every day. Now, that being said, I really do push the aspect of trying to know yourself. And really, there's several tests out in the market right now. My favorite have always been Myers-Briggs type indicator. Myers-Briggs sits down and it helps define who you are. And I think once you know who you are, then you can sit down and focus on what are the strengths of other people that they bring to the table. The other one that I like for a test is called Strengths Quest. Strengths Quest has been used by over 3 million people. And frankly, the results of that and identifying who they are as a person is enlightening for the person taking it. And I think once you know who you are, that'll give you a solid sense of purpose so you can go through and help confront different aspects of the leadership role. Now, the other one, I do believe that there's another component, and it's a skill set that you have to learn to some extent. That's learning to evoke trust from others. I boiled it down to the four C's. First of all, competence making certain that you know what you're doing and especially know what you're doing before you open your mouth and have an opinion about it. Second is consistency. Every employee has the right to expect their boss to be the same on Monday that they have on Tuesday. And I don't think leaders should be emotionally charged. They shouldn't come into the workplace and be angry one day, sad the next, and normal the third. They really need to be consistent from day to day. The third aspect of trust is about communication. Communication is the linchpin to understanding what's going on, listening to people and talking to people, making certain you're on the same page. And the fourth one is surprisingly is candor. Being direct and honest with people and really saying, well, this is what I see and tell me if I'm seeing it wrong. And then sit back and listen to what they have to say. And you may be totally shocked as to how their perception is totally different from yours. Listen and learn from that. If you really go through the aspect of knowing yourself, being comfortable in your own skin, so to speak, and then also working on trust, making certain that you're the same person, you're competent in what you're doing. If you're not admitting it, it's incredible how powerful that is. And then communicating and then being honest with the people you're working with as well as yourself. You've brought up a lot of things that I've experienced in my career And some of the points that I wanted to go back to is when you stated, don't leave with your heart, but don't leave it behind. And I remember the first time that I had to go through a downsizing. And for me, 
I'm not the type of person because my background is human resources too. That was my first career. When I first had to do my first downsizing, what was important was that I fully understood why we were doing it since I had to be the person to explain to those employees who were going to be separated. And then I had to feel as though I had done everything in my power to help them position for their next transition. And that's something that I took with every company. And every time that I had to go through that process, I had to make sure that the leadership team understood I had to follow that approach. I had to be able to go home and get a good night's sleep about what I had done. And it was more than I did what my supervisor told me. And I think in the human resource field, there are a lot, I see it coming back that a lot of human resource professionals are becoming more balanced. One of the things that you stated, the whole thing, I call it the imposter syndrome or accepting yourself. I believe one of the challenges that we are facing is a lot of companies are cutting their training and development budgets. And as a result, employees are having to fend for themselves in terms of developing themselves either for their current job or something they want to do in the future. Based on your experience and everything that you've stated about what's in your book, what type of advice would you give to a leader in terms of how do they get to know their people and motivate them to not only do what is required at the current time, but to be able to shift when either technology or some type of disruptor comes up and they have to go into task mode or a mode that they're not accustomed to? What are your thoughts on that? A leader has to sit down and go through and quantify what they expect out of staff development. If a leader is not requiring 20 hours at least annually for staff development, they really are an error in the aspect that they're not paying attention to the actual physical cost, the emotional cost, and the loyalty that can be generated from having that constant contact of trying to build people up. And I'm using 20 hours just as a base point. But that being said, technology can consume almost any company. And some of that 20 hours has to be developed and dedicated solely to technology learning to keep us current. But that said, when you train somebody, you run a risk of them using that skill set to leave your firm. The other part, though, is there's really more evidence and data that shows that training actually helps them stay longer in the firm. And the quantifiable cost of that is that every time you hire a person, it takes six months really to get them up to par. In the meantime, you're actually losing money because they're not as productive as they could be. So pretty much when you hire a new person, it may take them nine months to a year to fully understand all the components of the job, but it's going to cost you in different aspects of it up to six months salary to do that. So training is actually an investment in the human capital of the organization. And the other part too is that training has been shown that people would tend to stick around longer because they have a sense of loyalty. The most important training of all, and one that is probably the most neglected in anywhere. Now, I'm in higher education, and I know it's neglected in just about every community college in California. But that being said, it's the same thing as in private sector industry, is orientation. 
Now, a lot of people dump orientation on human resources. You really need to have a human resource orientation for the specific policies, but you need to have a mentor grabbing the person, showing them all the basic stuff and where the restrooms are located to this is where you get your supplies to this and this, and they should follow up and make certain the person isn't floundering. The first three months of an employee's employment, they need to sit down and be comfortable with the aspect of, I know this, I know this, I know this. They should be learning something every day. They should also be self-motivated in trying to sit down and wander down the hallway and stick their nose in somebody's office and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm new. By the way, what do you do? So I think having those kind of aspects that you want the new employees to encourage them to go out and find new things in the company and make themselves more valuable and build those connectors, those human connectors between themselves and the people around them, those things are invaluable. And then a leader sitting down having expectations for you to better yourself really makes a solid statement saying, we value you as a person. We want you to stick around and here's some training we're going to have. Oh, and by the way, I'm doing the same training myself. And also the technology, if we all don't all pay attention, it's going to gobble us up. So we have to have that kind of training to keep us current as well. Great. You touched on a couple of points, and this is where I'm going to discuss some of the things that we're doing in our programs. When you had mentioned the Myers-Briggs, who you are, that's an exercise that we do in some of our courses, like as an icebreaker during that first week. And one of the things that I have suggested when I do it with a class is, yes, this is a fun exercise, and you get to know a lot about yourself. And just for the sake of conversation, I'm a very strong ENFP, Um, but (laughs) I turn it around. And one of the questions that I pose to the class is now that we've had some fun to find out who we are and what works pretty much best for us in terms of learning style and our personality, but what happens when chaos arises? How does your personality change? And one of the things that I found was that When we're working in chaos, I'm still a very low-key person, but I know some people who have a profile that is almost opposite of me, they may tend to stress or be a little bit offended if I'm still very laid back going through the chaos, but that's just my personality. So we go through and talk about not only how do you get along with your coworkers and other departments, like with your personality as you are every day, but what happens when chaos and change start to occur? How do you deal with people who are different than you? And one of the other points that I think you really brought up that hits home was about that new, I call it new higher orientation, but a lot of the things that you were describing is allowing the new employee to understand the unwritten rules, to understand the culture, to get to meet people, not necessarily based on what their job is. Because one of the things that I have suggested during the interviewing process is you can have a job and have it in three or four different departments. And the job is very different, even though the same skill set is needed, but it depends on the people you're working and the type of subculture that they have developed and are you going to fit in? I tend to get away from that fit word because a lot of people are using that to exclude people. And that's not what I'm saying. But how do you make it a very harmonious environment so that everyone sees their contributions and they feel respected and valued? And I think that ties into what you were discussing about how do you get people to want to become loyal? 
going into that, since we talked about the skill sets, one of the final questions that I have, and I think it's very important because I have some thoughts, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. And what do you see to be the greatest challenge facing organizations this year in 2019? It really is. It's something that I actually call diversity. And diversity, I believe, is much more than accepting people for culture, background, ethnicity. It really is accepting people for who they are and how they think. One problem that I see consistently done is that when somebody leaves an organization, they retire, they are, they're on the search committee to help replace themselves, which is exactly how you don't do it. If you want to have new perspectives and everything, you need to sit down and have new perspectives. The person that's sitting there, their tendency is always going to try to hire somebody that looks and thinks like them. Even if it's a matter of, I've seen people hire themselves in different genders. I had one executive who tended to hire exactly the same personality all the time, and it didn't matter about race or culture. What it mattered to him was if they were pushy, aggressive, and a bully. And he tended to always hire the same one, which was himself. So you'll see that. So part of it is making certain you surround yourself by people who think totally different than you do. I enjoy having engaging conversations with people who have a different perspective. And it's incredible how when you have people who think differently than you on a team, how if you mesh everything and you talk and really sit down and listen, you can actually come up with better solutions. In higher ed, everything is run by a committee. The committees can be onerous, they can be time-consuming, but the other part is when I'm in a meeting, I want to make certain that if somebody has been silent during a meeting, I really say, okay, I've heard from everybody except Samantha over here. Samantha, what do you think about this? And Samantha, she may have been sitting there the entire time, not thinking, not saying anything, as far as anybody knows. And all of a sudden, Samantha comes out with seven different points that people didn't think about. If you don't call them and ask them to participate, they'll sit down and they'll go back to their desk frustrated, and you lose the riches that that person provides. I've seen multiple times where people who have been silent in the meeting, you call them out and say, hey, you're part of this team. What do you think? They bring an idea forward that really ends up being the one that wins the day. So listening is probably the most powerful thing because listening is a part of communicating. It's just people tend to think communicating is all about talking and it's not. The other part, what skills are necessary today, I was just going over this the other day with a, believe it or not, a class. And the functions of management, it really is planning, leading, organizing, and controlling. But when you dive into all the components that almost every textbook has about leading, they all deal with communicating. And communication is a huge deal. For instance, if you want to get involved into change, change can be one of the most powerful and destructive forces you can unleash in an organization. It's brought down many a leader. And most of it really comes down because the leader didn't communicate to the employees exactly what was going on. If you're going to sit down and move the water cooler from one side of the office to the other, there is going to be somebody offended at that. 
And if you don't sit down and provide an explanation for it, even just a simple, we're moving it over here because of this, then somebody's going to grumble. But to some extent, and people too often like to grumble, seems like. But, but that being said, why did you do it? And then if you deposit an empty desk in the middle of the office and don't have anybody behind it, so communicating what's going on on a regular basis and don't make assumptions that everybody knows, especially don't make the assumption that people actually read their email. Those things are really huge in the aspect of change. Change evokes fear. And usually fear comes from three different ways. One of them is fear of the unknown. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know, gee, that person was released. Am I next? They're making a reorganization. And here they may be slated for a promotion and they may be out looking for a job, assuming that they're going to be gone next. You don't know what you don't know. The second one is loss of value. People have been comfortable in their situation for the last X number of years, and all of a sudden now, change is striking, and they don't know where they're going to fit. They don't know if their power in the organization will be diminished or increased, and they have to sit down and reset who they are, and maybe the new person coming in, maybe a supervisor, may have to get to know them, and they may not like them. So there's all kinds of concerns in that. And really, the third part of fear that you have to address when you deal with change really comes down to they may believe that change really won't be effective. So you have to cope with all three of those, and most of it comes through massive communication. I was talking to the state chancellor, Eloy Oakley, for my book, and when he was president of a college, he went through and he made massive changes in the area of this called CTE, career technical education. He actually cut programs and he did it over a year and a half period. And he said, even though it was a courageous act in his part, as far as I'm concerned, because anytime you cut a program and you have faculty involved with it, the politics can be a huge price. He said, the biggest thing that I wish I'd gone back and done, I wish I communicated more to the employees. And I saw some of his communications. He sent out over 23 different emails telling everybody about it. But he said, I wish I had more time communicating. I wish I met with more people face-to-face. The face-to-face communication can leave a lot of fear with people just because of the fact you took time out to talk with them. And all of a sudden, now they become a person more than a body being moved from one place to the next. I I totally agree with that, especially the last example, people having the fear and it is the unknown and it gets worse when you don't communicate with them on a regular basis. I've unfortunately encountered some leaders who have taken the position where we don't have to explain everything to the employees. They just have to accept what we decide. And one of the things that really bothers me is when leaders go into a room and come up with solutions without involving the workforce because they do the job on a day-to-day basis. They understand some of the things that leaders tend to be removed from, even though they're charged with seeing the big picture. And it has to be a collaboration between both groups, especially if you're ready to go through change because you don't know what's on the other side. So you should have everybody on the ship rowing the same way. At least that's my personal opinion. And I like you sharing that story because I did not know about that. And I think it's very beneficial, especially in a lot of industries that have to make some hard decisions this year. I believe there's a tendency that when people become fearful, they will stick with what they know instead of exploring what could be the light that they're looking for. 
And in addition to the communication, sometimes I think you have to take the risk and do something different than what you've done before. Because sometimes what we've done in the past, it worked for us, but it worked for us in the past. It's not going to work for us in the future. And we need to be open to thinking outside of the box. I have found that there are still people who misunderstand what diversity and inclusion are. And I'm going to use LinkedIn as an example because it's a social media platform that I'm very active with. And sometimes when the question of diversity comes up, you have a lot of people who are saying, why can't we just hire the best candidate? Pretty much questions or comments along that line. And my question that I always posed is, why do you believe that someone would hire someone that is not qualified? How do you equate diversity with unqualified? And I kind of know what they're thinking, but I want to hear them say it or at least communicate it to me. And one of the jobs that I really, really enjoyed was being a diversity leader for in corporate. And one of the things that I found with the leaders, when they found out what my job was, they always assumed that I was going to force them to hire people that they did not want. And that ties into your comment about people tend to hire people who are like them. Um, One of the things that I always told them, I'm not going to tell you who to hire, but I want to hear why you don't have a workforce that is similar to the community. And the answer was always, well, we don't know. Basically, we don't know how to find people who are different than us. And so I was charged with going to find those type of people. And one of the benefits of that position was to see a lot of people change their mind based on someone coming in to help them to do something that they had no idea of where to start. These were people who were line managers. They knew how to do the job, but they were being charged to pretty much create a program on the soft skills which they were learning themselves. So they didn't understand how to get people in their department that was reflective of the community as well as who their customers were. And once we were able to do that, things started to turn around towards the positive. And I think they have a better understanding of what diversity and inclusion actually mean. So I appreciate you bringing that point up. I didn't expect that, but it gave me an opportunity to share my thoughts on something that I tend to see, and that's misinformation of what diversity and inclusion actually means. I really appreciate you coming in and talking with us, especially about organizational change and how it correlates to fear and how we can get rid of that fear. And dealing with our individual selves, knowing who we are, and being the best people that we can, given the strengths, talents, and gifts that each of us has. So what are your closing thoughts? I wrote the book, Backboneology, Tough Decisions at Work, specifically because being strong in the workplace doesn't mean that you have to sit there and be physically strong or have a strong personality. It means being communicative and expressing exactly what you're looking for and then stopping to listen because somebody else may have even a better way to achieve what you want. So Backboneology really is about a custom-made leadership profile for yourself. There's no canned way of doing it, but we need to set ourselves free in the aspect of leading in our own style, but being aware of what that style is and how we go back and open ourselves to other people and listen to what they have to say and then moving forward. 
you're leading with your soul, and then you actually listen to other people and have a shared vision built with theirs included because of the fact that they will have something to contribute and they want to contribute, then all of a sudden now you have a solid team going forward instead of a few people. So I just want to say if anybody wants to send an email to me, the first three listeners to your podcast here, I would be happy to sit down and if they say, David, I will listen to the podcast with Dr. Harper. The first three that send an email to docdthewriter.com, I will send them their own copy of the book and they could have it on their own for free. So my email address is docd. T-H-E-W-R-I-T-E-R at gmail.com. But that, I really want to thank you, Dr. Harper, for the opportunity to be here. I think your podcast really strikes a lot of different notes because of the diversity that you have and the reality of politics in the workplace really comes home because we all have it. We just got to pay attention to it. And actually, instead of being the victim to it, lead it and make sure we're open to everybody around us. Great. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this time and our conversation, and I look forward to additional and future collaborations because this has been very exciting. It has been very educational for me as well, and I just wish you the best. Thank you. Super. Thank you. Thank you very much. You take care. And all your listeners, take care as well. For more information about our university, visit us at study at apu.com. APU, American Public University.